0: This is The Daily Signal Podcast for Tuesday, April 12th. I'm Virginia Allen.
1: And I'm Doug Blair. The left makes a big deal about teaching race in America. From the 1619 Project to Critical Race Theory, they say that America is irredeemably steeped in racism and that race should be the central focus of all aspects of American life. Delano Squires, a homeschool father and scholar at 1776 Unites, took his kids out of school after he found objectionable materials in the curriculum. He joins the show to discuss how race should be taught in our schools.
0: But before we get to Doug's conversation with Delano Squires, let's hit our top news stories of the day. On Monday, a European leader met with Russian President Vladimir Putin for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. Austria's Chancellor Karl Nehammer sat down with Putin for over an hour outside Moscow. Nehammer described the meeting as not friendly and said the conversation was very direct, open, and tough. The Austrian leader visited Ukraine before meeting with Putin and met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He also visited the town of Bucha, where dead bodies of Ukrainians were strewn across the streets. Nehammer said he raised those atrocities with Putin and told the Russian leader that sanctions against Russia will remain in place and will continue to be tightened as long as people are dying in Ukraine. The Austrian chancellor said he wanted to meet with Putin because there is no alternative to seeking direct talks with Russia as well, despite all the very great differences. Over the weekend, Putin appointed a new general to lead Russia's invasion of Ukraine and take further control of Ukraine's eastern Donbass region.
1: President Biden is renewing his focus on imposing new gun controls. On Monday, the president announced a measure that he said aims to curb violence caused by privately made guns, also known as ghost guns. Here's Biden on his new rules via the White House.
2: Today, the United States Department of Justice is making it illegal for a business to manufacture one of these kits without a serial number. Illegal. (laughs) Illegal for a licensed gun dealer to sell them without a background check. (laughs) And starting today, weapons like the one used in Saugus High School and to ambush deputies with us that are here with us today are being treated like the deadly firearms they are. And if somebody sells a ghost gun to a federally licensed dealer, for example, a pawn shop, that dealer must make the firearm and mark it with a serial number before reselling it. All of a sudden, it's no longer a ghost. It has a return address. It's going to help save lives, reduce crime, and get more criminals off the streets.
1: The president also announced that the government would pursue dealers who sell illegal guns put resources into stopping gun trafficking, invest in community policing, and increase police funding. Critics say the Biden administration is overstepping its bounds and violating Americans' rights to bear arms. In a Sunday statement, Gun Owners of America's Director of Federal Affairs, Aidan Johnston, said, Biden's proposal to create a comprehensive national gun registry and end the online sale of gun parts without the passage of a new law exemplifies his disregard for the Second Amendment.
0: A new poll from CBS News and YouGov reports that President Biden's approval rating is at an all-time low. 42% of Americans say they approve of the way Biden is handling his job as president. Back in March 2021, that rating was 62% approval. The new poll found that 37% of Americans say they approve of the way Biden is handling the economy, and 38% they approve of the way Biden is handling immigration. Of all the categories participants were asked about, Biden received the highest approval for his handling of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with 45% saying they approve.
1: Now stay tuned for my conversation with Delano Squires as we talk about race and education.
0: Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you about the most popular resource on the Heritage Foundation website, The Guide to the Constitution. More than 100 scholars have contributed to create a unique line-by-line analysis of our Constitution. The guide is intended to provide a brief and accurate explanation of each clause of the Constitution as envisioned by the framers and as applied in contemporary law. There has never been a more important time to have an understanding of our founding document. So if you want to learn more about the Constitution, go ahead and visit heritage.org slash constitution, or simply search for Heritage Guide to the Constitution.
1: My guest today is Delano Squires, CEO at the Civitas Consulting Group, scholar at 1776 Unites, and a homeschool father. Delano, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. We wanted to talk to you very much because you have an experience in D.C. about how the education system failed your family. So you took your kids out of the D.C. education
3: system. What led you to that decision? So it, it was a decision that was a couple of years in the making. Um, some of it was based on what we felt we were not getting in the school system, and some of it honestly was just a, a natural faith evolution for both myself and my wife. Long story short, um, we had our daughter enrolled in a public charter school for one year mm. um, in in the district. It, it was a it was a good school. The, the staff was friendly. Her teachers were really you know responsive. She got homework every night. Um, I had some questions about, you know, the, the, the structure of the school. It was it was very orderly and structured, which I think is a good thing. Mm. But sometimes for some kids they may not react all that well. But but she was doing well on on that front. But the first thing that made me reconsider at least what the school was doing is when I noticed that they had uh, one of these books, you know, that promotes quote unquote social justice called A is for Activists. Mm. It wasn't in my daughter's classroom. It was in a different classroom that was, you know, on a different floor that made me, you know, think about, okay, what direction is the school going in? And then come February of that school year, they unveiled like a large Black Lives Matter poster with the Mm. the faces of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and, and other individuals who were either killed by the police or vigilantes and I just emailed the principal to ask, OK, you know, what is the school stance on Black Lives Matter? Because i had done some extensive research and I knew that Black Lives Matter was not an organization whose principles um, spoke to their concern with police brutality because they never mentioned police or brutality in any mm-hmm. of the principles. I knew that they were more concerned about um, their views and their worldview related to feminism in terms of being uh, LGBTQ affirming, um, and and their desire to disrupt the the Western prescribed nuclear family, as they put it. Mm. So I just wanted to know what the school thought about it. He never responded to me, and that actually was the perfect opportunity um, to to reevaluate what we were going to do, you know, with our daughter's education. Then came COVID in March of that year in twenty twenty. And, it, and as I said, it, it was a good time for us to, to think about what direction we wanted to go in. And most importantly was the, the faith aspect, which is I began to see education um, not just as reading, writing, arithmetic, but as equal parts scholarship and discipleship. So mm-hmm. that's academic mastery and moral formation. And, and when I began to understood that as a, as a Christian and a Christian father, it was my responsibility to, to train up my children in the fear and knowledge of God. And I realized that the government schools or public charter schools would not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what necessitated that change.
1: Absolutely. Do you see that your kids, since they were in that school system mm-hmm. for a little bit, do you mm-hmm. think that they took any of that messaging back with them? I know a lot of parents have been seeing that their kids have gotten some of this critical race theory, social justice from their school system. Do you feel like your kids kept any of that from their time in the school system?
3: No. she. Our daughter at the time was three. Um, for people who may not know, D.C. starts its uh, pre-K programs at three years old. Um, so she was a slightly older three because of her birthday. But uh, I didn't see anything in her classroom that spoke to that. Mm. I'm not sure what it looks like now or what it looks like for, for older students. Uh, one thing I'll say is this. A lot of times it's not necessarily that school is engaging in certain types of instruction in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's that the school's um, sort of operating principles put them into that lane. So one place to look for a lot of parents would be uh, social media. Mm. So if you check the school's Twitter page or their Instagram page, you can get a sense of where the school lines up in terms of its worldview and how it incorporates... With issues of um, uh, matters of race or sex, sexuality, gender identity, um, in, into the way it does business. Because a lot of times, what happens is that the schools don't necessarily want parents to know everything that they're doing. But if if you pay attention, you can you can pick up you know some some subtleties and see okay, this is the direction I see this school going to. And I think for parents. It's at the moment you feel like something is going in the wrong direction, that's, that's when you need to speak up. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this is a topic I think that a lot of people are very curious about because when they hear about how race is taught in schools, it mm-hmm. is very much through that lens of Black Lives Matter or the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. How do you think race should be
3: taught about in schools? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know that race needs to be taught. Uh, I'm a person that believes because this often comes up as it relates to American history. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I believe in teaching the good, bad and ugly of history, regardless of who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Even if I was talking to my own children about, you know, our our larger family history, I I wouldn't hide things from them out of fear of how, you know, it would make them feel. Obviously, age appropriate. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm not for for, quote unquote, whitewashing history in any way, shape or form. Um, and I know that can be uncomfortable for some parents because the natural human instinct is to cover your shame. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a lot easier for us to do in-depth studies and, and be critical of Nazi Germany than it is for us to talk about, for some people to even talk about, what was the cause behind the Civil War. right? right? right. That being said, I think the problem comes in when schools move from saying, this is the uh this is where we were, or this is what happened years before, right um this is what life was like in America to this is what life is like in America. Mm. The problem comes in when you go from saying um the Ku Klux Klan was an organization that you know rose during the reconstruction period and the people who were in it believe these things about uh, blacks and Jews and other you know non-white individuals, therefore, the white people you see today carry the stain of the Klan wherever they go when mm-hmm. this country is irredeemably racist. That pivot point is where the problems almost always come in, um, and I think that is the thing that needs to be opposed by all parents, not just white parents, mm-hmm. but, but black parents as well because of what it does. It plants seeds of alienation, particularly for uh, black Americans, because it leaves them thinking that the country that they live in in 2022 is no different than the country of the ancestors inherited or lived in in 1822. Um, And national alienation is always a problem. It doesn't matter what country or what ethnicity, because I can't think of any institution in which a person flourishes when they hate the institution. Right. I don't know of anyone who hates their wife that would then say that they have a good marriage, right? So, or hates their job that says and then turns around and says, "Yeah, I want to work there for the next forty years." So, Mm -hmm. um, I I think we should teach history as it as it happened. I don't think we should try to soften it. Again, obviously, age appropriate. Mm -hmm. I think we should also teach. Um, particularly, the, and then, well, I was going to say particularly for black students, but no, I think we should also teach messages of triumph. Mm. One of the things I love about being affiliated with 1776 Unites Project is that th- there's no turning away from, you know, the things that took place in America. But it's OK. Th- these are the ways in which black Americans triumphed and mm-hmm. overcame um, and persevered and succeeded in spite of the conditions that they faced. Um, you know, 40, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago. So we talk about, you know, figures like Biddy Mason, who who ended up becoming, a, went from slavery to becoming a millionaire, or Robert Smalls, who who commandeered, a, um, uh, I think it was a Confederate vessel and ended up, you know, fighting for the Union. So, so these are individuals who students can look to um, and draw from because, to me, uh, history, if it's taught properly, one, should be informative— mm. It should make us reflect on on how far we've come. But if, if we want to use it for where we are today, it should be uh, a battery in our back to charge us forward, not an anchor around our neck to weigh us down. So um, I'm for teaching the truth, all right, regardless of, of of you know what it may look like. But I'm not for indicting people of today for things that were done by people who look like them. Forget about ancestors, because mm. I mean, I grew up in New York. So most of the white kids I went to school with did not have ancestors, you know, from the deep Confederate South. Right. It was Russian and Polish and Italian and, and Irish immigrants. So th- those weren't their ancestors. But it's you look like someone who did something wrong to someone who looked like me 200 years ago. Therefore, you should have to pay for their sins. And and I, and I don't think that's that's right. And certainly not biblical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned that because when you were talking, I was I remembered something that Morgan Freeman said. I think he's sort of gone back on this, but he asked, you know, why do we have a Black History Month? Mm. It's American history, right? Right, Black people are a part of that history. So I guess my question for you then is, do we need to separate it out? Is there a need for a sort of like specific study of black people or do we just Mm. say Frederick Douglass was a really great American
3: man? Mm. Here's what his story is. Again, a great question. I um, I see both avenues as viable, depending on the context. One of the issues that is hard to get around is that race has always been an important part. Um, in our, It played an important role in, in our country, right? Mm-hmm. Whether from the protection of rights or, or the distribution of resources. So I think for some people it's hard to think about Getting rid of race, quote unquote, at this stage in the game. Um, that being said, I do think Frederick Douglass is is an American hero, and one of the things that I like to see is people like Douglas and Booker T. Washington, not not just you know Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. Obviously, that they're they're great mm. American heroes, and we we celebrate them. But people who may be lesser known, Mary McLeod Bethune or whoever it is, I like to see. Those people's names being brought up, I'd like to see the things that those people taught, their contributions being brought up in the other eleven months, mm-hmm. and oftentimes, and and really, I think we make progress when it's done by non-black people, um, because Douglas and I, and actually my my inaugural essay for 1776 17, nights was about Frederick Douglass, and I called it. Um, authentic anti-racism so I juxtapose what Douglas was arguing for at a point when slavery was still legal uh, in terms of being anti-racist and what Ibram Kendi argues for right Ibram Kendi is actually pro-discrimination he just thinks that discrimination today should be used to remedy the sins of yesterday Mm -hmm. and that discrimination tomorrow should be used to remedy the sins of today Douglas took a, a totally different approach. He, he took a more certainly what I would characterize as a more biblical approach, mm-hmm. affirming the humanity of all people, regardless of skin color or ethnicity, um, arguing for true justice. right? So equal weights and measures, again, regardless of who the person is and arguing that that black people do not need pity um, or paternalism from from their white uh, American brethren. We, we need justice, and you can have justice and charity and justice and benevolence, but justice is always the, the first component. So um, uh, maybe in, in 10, 15 years, we won't have um, a Black History Month. I, I think one of the blessings of living in America is that you get to see um, really what a, a unique social experiment play out where this is not a country where there's a single ethnicity, mm-hmm. right? So there's 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 not a real context in which a person born in Sweden could ever become Chinese. Right. right. It doesn't matter how long they lived in China, and if even if they spoke the language, if they told the the public or someone in China said, oh no, I'm Chinese, they would look at them and say, no, you're right. Swedish. Yeah. But in but in America, someone whose family is from China, we accept as American. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the extent that we See ourselves as strictly American. Um, I think that would be that would work for the for the cause of social cohesion. Whether we get there or not is a different question. But I, but I think, and, and I'd like to caution people. Sometimes when you when we hear words like um, diversity, mm-hmm. they have been so misused and abused that it puts some people on guard immediately. But I think learning about all different types of characters, heroes, and, and sometimes villains, throughout American history, does um, enrich that sort of uh, um, that painting, you know, of, of America um, as it has been, and, and really hopefully as it as it will continue to be. So I, I can see either way going. I don't mind Black History Month, but I'm also not confined to one month. Mm. So and especially as a homeschool dad, we we teach our our children you know constantly so we we my wife just got um some lessons on Egypt um uh, my daughter's learning about Bessie Coleman mm-hmm. um and and we really want to uh encourage the kids to be interested in those figures but not just in people who look like them because sometimes it's easy to get carried away in in representation representation is important it does matter but sometimes it can be overrated Following up on what you just said about how you teach your own kids, I'm curious what
1: your lesson plans and what your strategy for teaching your kids is, because there is a very distinct educational sort of pedagogy right now that Mm -hmm. is focused explicitly on critical race theory, social-emotional learning, these Mm -hmm. things that are very much based in kind of leftist ideology.
3: What are you teaching your kids right now? First, we we teach them that um, they were created by God, Mm -hmm. and it is in that fact that they should find their value um, and where their sense of purpose and, and dignity comes from. Um, so, we, so we start there. So, so both in terms of God is the center of creation and the center of all knowledge. So we're, we're a Christian family, and we are trying to teach our children in a way that we pass on our values to the next generation. Um, so so, so that, that's, that's a big part of it. But the other thing is, you know, social and emotional learning in its truest sense is already baked in because they're our kids mm. and nobody cares for them more than we do. Right. Right. We're not using them as as puppets in a larger sort of political agenda. We consistently see that the radical left proposes policies that
1: are aimed at uplifting black kids mm. in schools. Why do those policies seemingly consistently fail?
3: Mm. I think it's because. The left and sometimes the right, to be quite frank, start in the wrong place. So I I think of um, a a society, civil society, in the same way I think of a body. There are many different parts that play different roles. What we tend to do in our political discourse is to blame all of the problems in the body on a handful of body parts. Mm -hmm. So if you let's let's say um, that the government is the, the hands, right? When the family starts to break down, and let's say the family is, I don't know, the head. Mm. When the family breaks down, everybody starts to look at the hands mm. and say, "Why aren't you doing more?" Now. What we would do is say, okay, which part of the body is ailing? How do we get more help to that particular part? Mm -hmm. So people who think that more education spending is going to correct for serious home and environmental issues um, are are not really understanding sort of the, the, the full weight of the problems we're talking about. Some schools do a really good job, and oftentimes even when those schools work with low-income parents, you know, whether black or Hispanic or even white, um, they're working with parents who may not have a lot of resources but who are invested in their children's education. But if, if you have a school where the parents are not as invested as they should be and a child is, is growing up in, in an environment of disorder and dysfunction, again, it doesn't matter what skin color the child is. That child is going to have problems learning. Mm -hmm. Now, every once in a while, you may get an exceptional child who can uh, achieve in spite of those environmental issues. But I think the single biggest problem with how we talk about education in our country is the fact that we don't start the conversation in the family, in Mm -hmm. the home, because parents should be um, a child's first and foremost educators mm-hmm. and if the first time a child is ever read to is when they're five years old starting kindergarten that is a problem and that mm. means someone has not been doing their job for the last five years right um, so I, I think you know that's one of the biggest problems I also think that um, a lot of education spending is spent is spent on central administration and mm-hmm. um, The K through 12 environments is starting to look a lot like the college environment where there are a lot of administrators, a lot of bureaucratic fat uh, that could be trimmed um, because a lot of that money does not get into the classroom. The other thing is that, again, you know, schools are uh, busying themselves with things that have nothing to do with the basic building blocks of an education. Mm -hmm. So by the time a school introduces the gender unicorn— you you know that things have gone off the rails, mm-hmm. um, when you're talking to five year olds about that type of thing, and not teaching them how to read um, phonetically, right? So so some of this is pedagogy, mm-hmm. so it's reading by phonics or, or whole word, you know, instruction. So, but what, but when you find yourself engaging in partisan or political activities in the classroom. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that schools have failed um, black students and and depending on the jurisdiction, you know, white or Hispanic students as well. But I think, again, I would I would start the conversation in the family. But that is a difficult conversation. And it's one in which it's hard for people to be honest, because what ends up happening is that people will look at surveys and they'll say, well, we asked all these families. Uh, the same question. Do you value your child's education? And they all said yes at equal rates. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a worthless question. Mm-hmm. right? You don't ask that. You ask, on average, how many hours a day does your child spend doing homework or studying?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And on average, how many ch- hours a day does your child spend on athletics or entertainment? And then you compare. Right. Because. Some some parents um, do not prioritize their ch- children's education in the way that they should, mm-hmm. and they push it all off on the teachers. And the schools are more than happy to take on that role, and that's what we're seeing. That What we're seeing now playing out in Florida and in other spaces is really a custody battle between parents and pseudo-parents who are schools who think, who forgot that, um, in loco parentis is, is Latin, right? And it means the, the school is acting in the parent's stead. They think that in loco parentis is Spanish, that these parents are crazy, <laughs> right? And, and we're seeing that struggle play out. That struggle for authority is playing out um, in real time. And I think that's why these schools are getting so frustrated because they're saying, how dare you parents tell us what we can do with our children mm. on our time? And parents are getting fed up with it and saying, no, these are not our kids. I'll give you one quick example. Sure. Before we pulled our daughter out of our, the charter school, we were looking at a private classical Christian school, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was in Maryland, so it was outside the city. Um, the demographic—basically, all the kids looked exactly the same. The school mm. was—the you know, the charter school was 95% black. The private Christian classical school was 95% black. But when we went there— um, it it was a it was an environment where you could tell that order and structure were valued. We went into um, maybe a sophomore math class, and when we got to the door, when we opened the door, when our guide opened the door, the children stood up and greeted us, mm. and my wife and I were blown away because she was a social worker, so she's worked in you know public schools. I'm familiar with what goes on, in, and typically it's not that, right? right? right. That, that type of order is not what you see. But when we looked at the school's guidebook, they said, now again, it's classical and Christian. So mm-hmm. they said clearly that parents are responsible for their children's education, mm-hmm. biblically, and that we, the school, partner with parents in, in helping to educate their children. Mm-hmm. The charter school we were coming from When they got to the parental section, they said, parents are our allies as we teach kids. Mm. It's a different emphasis. Right. Right. So the charter school says, no, education is our job. Parents sort of come along and, and help us where we need help. But the other school said, no, it's the responsibility of parents to educate their children. And we are acting in their stead. And I think that that is a worldview difference that we should not minimize because, um, A lot of schools operate in the latter model where they say, no, we own education Mm. and we have the right to dictate what we say to students and parents. um, If you're not going to be our allies, you just need to shut up and move out of the way. Right, right. I think that's a a lot to think about. And we're we're very glad
1: to to have that conversation. That was Delano Squire, CEO at Civitas Consulting Group, scholar at 1776 Unites and a homeschool father. Delano, very much appreciate your time. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal podcast.
0: You can find The Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe.
1: Thanks again for listening, and we're back with you all
2: tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.